welcome to the Archimedes podcast of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. My name is Bob Phillips and this month we're going to talk about lampposts and drunken people, little babies and group B strep infection and also pneumothoraces in neonates as well. What an exciting time you have ahead of you. If you want to get in on the action as well, maybe do your own Archimedes, maybe even come on the podcast and discuss it, then why don't you have a look at the instructions to authors on the website and email us your ideas. We're very helpful and we give you a rough suggestion as to whether it's been covered before and the sorts of things that you might want to think about when you're writing your Archimedes. We've had all sorts of people do it. Social workers, medical students, consultants, loads of registrars, people from around the world, even people from as far away as Hull and Glasgow. All sorts of folk have committed Archimedes which have helped other people as they've gone on to do their practice in the best evidence-based way. Now, very occasionally we like to rely on important bits of information that we've gained from our youth in order to inform our practice and tell us what to do. And one of those things was a tale that was told often in the North. And I will tell you that tale now. There's a tale told in the North of a man drunkenly scrabbling on the path at night met by a neighbour who was also on his way home from the Hound of the Rufus pub. "'What you doing, Arthur?' asks the upright man. "'Looking for me key,' responds Arthur. "'Did you just drop it?' asks his inquisitive pal. "'Nay, lad, lost it back at town,' grumpily responds the desperate scrabbler. "'Then why are you looking there?' "'It's too dark to look back there, of course.' Now, I'm imagining many of us have had similar experiences of looking in pockets that we've already searched for a pen, list, pager, battery, phone, spectacles or or similar. And we've probably done the same when we've looked at evidence for the treatment for our patients. The process of evidence-based medicine begins with ask a question in a focused and patient-relevant way, possibly using the PICO model, and we've talked about that on this podcast, but also on the blog site as well. Now, now if we only ask questions where we know a little bit already, or where we know that there are data to be mined, are we any better than Arthur, searching in the light for his key when it was lost in the dark? Do we tend to only ask our clinical questions under the lampposts? And if we do, how can we do it differently? How can we look where we're not sure we'll find things? How can we come up with the questions where the answers aren't immediately obvious? Well, have a go and try it and see if the wisdom of the North can help you. Now, moving on to our first question this month. It's from Cécile, Cécile Fadel-Fournerai, Elise Launay, Jocelyne Carillon, Elise Thomas, Cécile Boscher and Christelle Grasse-Leguin of the Department of Paediatrics in the Centre Hospitalitaire Université de Nantes in, from Nantes in France. And I'm apologising in advance for my dreadful French accent, so I'm really sorry if I've pronounced your names wrong. What this question is about is the sort of situation that arises from time to time. Their particular question arises when a 22-day-old twin comes into the uh, admissions unit looking a bit off, not feeding right, bit hot, get, uh, and started with a full septic screening on antibiotics. Blood cultures and CSF confirm that they've got late-onset group B strep disease. The question then arises, what about their twin? 
Should we bring them in, culture them, start them on antibiotics, or just careful clinical observation? What's the right thing to do? Maybe of importance is to note that these are non-identical, these are dizygotic twins. Well, the authors of this were a bit unsure as to what the answer might be. Guidelines suggest just looking at the child, but, but not apparently on the best evidence. And so they went away and they looked in Cochrane, Medline, they searched through the references, and they eventually came up with 13 different articles that report on 17 different siblings who had this situation of twins with group B strep disease. Now, you'll probably know that group B strep disease, late onset sepsis, is a higher rate of occurrence in the premature uh, and that it can be really quite bad with, with mortality rates even in developed countries of around about 4% and some morbidity afterwards for those survivors. It varies a little bit between countries and varies between whether you're twins or not. Twins seem to have a higher rate of infection. Maybe it's the breast milk, maybe it's the parental environment and the germ passing. Maybe it's a a genetic susceptibility. There's certainly some stuff that's been written to say that that monozygotic twins, the ones that are more genetically identical, are more at risk of problems than the dizygotic twins. The findings of the evidence that they dragged together were these case reports of 17 different siblings, 15 of whom were infected. Uh, the median time to infection of the second twin, this is this is the asymptomatic twins, not symptomatic twins, obviously. Uh, the median time to infection was four days, uh, but the range was on the same day right the way through to 52 days later, which is a very, very wide range. Of those that were evaluated, um, nine out of the 15 infected were found to have the same serotype infection as the index case. And in those cases, there was always evidence that that serotype was present in the parents as well, be that on swabs rectovaginal or swabs um, from the carriage or breast milk samples. The breast milk samples are particularly interesting in some ways because there has been a suggestion that it is a group B strep carriage in the breast milk that leads to infection sometimes. Of the five cases that they assigned breast milk as the only thing that they could find that transmitted the infection, three of those were also associated with mastitis in the mother. So it might be that there's something about mastitis that increases the risk of transmission and infection. Setting aside this, though, um, you have other data that suggests somewhere between 1% and 3.5% of mothers routinely carry group B strep in their breast milk, and that is somewhere near the rate of group B strep infection we see in the population. So it's not as straightforward as there is a bug that must be the cause. All of this uncertainty, though, does lead us to have to come up with an answer. When there is an asymptomatic twin, we can't just go, well, I don't know. We've got to do something And what these authors suggest, having had a look at the evidence, is that the asymptomatic child should probably be evaluated fully clinically, but it may also be worth admission for close observation and taking cultures and observing them very closely with any symptoms beginning antibiotics. And then if the cultures come back negative and they're not unwell over the course of the next couple of days, then let them go home, but with strict instructions, obviously, to return if there are problems. The breastfeeding question, well, they've come down on the side that says if there's mastitis, then don't give the baby breast milk. If there isn't mastitis, then maybe consider not breastfeeding for a day or two just while you get the culture results back of the breast milk to make sure that there isn't the bug there. Not necessarily to say that that's the cause. 
That's a very difficult question to come down to, but that's what they've come up with having a look at the evidence. Actually, this might be one of those things where it's worth people having a look at it themselves and having a really good think. There's the facility to do a rapid response to this article, or obviously we can have a conversation on Twitter or via the blog site about these things. The next question about small babies is from Anna Gregory, Andrew Ewer and Andrew Singh of the Birmingham Women's and Children's Trust at Birmingham in the UK. They're asking the question of a baby that turns up on your neonatal unit because they've failed the pulse oximetry screen. Now, many of you will do this uh, where you take the sats on the prostuctal and preductal and see if there's a difference to try to detect previously undiagnosed cardiac lesions. But we also know that they detect some respiratory problems as well. So this baby's got a positive pulse ox screen, slightly raised respiratory rates, sats around about 90%, but both pre- and postductally and he's bunged in a little bit of low-flow oxygen, the SATs come up nicely to 95%. A chest x-ray has been done to see if there's any pathology, and slightly surprisingly, there's a left-sided pneumothorax. There's no sign to tension, and the baby doesn't really look like it's distressed at all. So you wonder, what's the right thing to do in this situation? Certainly doesn't seem right to leap in with a needle or some sort of directed intervention to get the air out, but then there is that thing about putting them in very high flow oxygen to fix pneumothoraces and whether that's the right thing to do. But then there's the worry about having lots and lots of oxygen around with small babies and causing problems to lung and eyes and everything else because oxygen itself might be a bit toxic with the free radicals and... Ah, time for a neonatal and Archimedes question. In neonates with uncomplicated pneumothoraces, is it right to give targeted oxygen to raise the saturations to just the right level or to give unrestricted high flow oxygen to wash out all the badness and make the pneumothorax go better? Well, they did quite an extensive Medline search, looked all over the place and chased some references down, but only really came up with two papers that were good enough to try and answer the question. Both of them were retrospective studies, as I guess you'd expect in a rare situation like this, and they looked at what the outcome was with the sort of haphazard nature of the way that some people had been treated with room air, some with a sort of moderate oxygen flow, some with a high oxygen flow, and looked at the sorts of things that you'd want. How long did it take for the pneumothorax to go? How long was the child in hospital? Were there any adverse consequences with extra infections or problems? And how long did the kids take to get back onto feeds? When they put all that information together from the 92 in one case series and 45 infants in the other case series, they came really with the point that there wasn't a lot that went on different. There wasn't seem to be any difference in time to resolution. No real difference in the time in hospital. Maybe a slight suggestion that it took a bit longer to get them on feeds if they were on 100%. But personally, I'm a bit dubious about that. Certainly wasn't better. Might have even been a tiny bit worse. And is there really any point in doing it if that's the case? And that's what the authors came down to. Their clinical bottom line was that the high concentration oxygen doesn't show greater benefit over just targeted therapy in the early resolution of a neonatal non-tension pneumothorax and that there is that slight chance that it may be disadvantageous. Now, obviously, this does not apply to children with really significant pneumothoraces or tension pneumothoraces where you need to do all sorts of things. Please don't try and treat a tension pneumothorax with just a little bit of oxygen. But it is interesting that when you look in the literature, sometimes you can come back with a fairly uncertain level of evidence, but it's good enough to say, this is what we should do, rather than more research is needed. 
And that is the beauty of Archimedes, taking a clinical query, really delving into the evidence to try to come up with what the answer should be, and then not just walking away going, oh well, more research is needed, but what can we actually do, even if more research is needed, whilst we're waiting for that research to occur. Until next month, this has been Archimedes. Please share it with your friends, tell everybody about it, and make us the new sensation and get us signed onto Channel 4 or Radio 3 in your near future. Thank you for listening.